All right, let's stay with weather right now. Out west, B.C. once again shattering extreme temperatures for a second day in a row. Temperatures up to 47.9 Celsius recorded yesterday, which tops Sunday's all-time high ever recorded in our country. The effects of climate change can be seen all around us. In 2021 alone, there have been record temperatures in Western Canada, floods in Germany, intense winter storms in Texas and cyclones in Indonesia, to name just a few. These freak weather events that would normally happen, say, once every 100 years, now happen annually and are caused by the increasing amount of CO2 in the atmosphere. This is the biggest challenge to humanity right now. So if technology can help us overcome COVID-19, how could it help us to overcome the rapidly growing problem of climate change through ecological restoration? Welcome to The Great Indoors, a podcast where we look at the lasting technological changes brought about by the pandemic and how technology can potentially help solve the other challenges facing humanity. I'm your host, Matt Roberts, and joining me is my co-pilot and producer, Larissa Yee. So our guest today to The Great Indoors is Mr. Troy Carter. Now, Troy is the CEO of Earthshot Labs, which is harnessing technologies such as artificial intelligence, machine learning, big data, low orbit satellites, and blockchain to build platforms and solutions for planetary-wide ecological restoration. He is bringing the audacious scale and vision of Silicon Valley startup methodology to the planet's ecological crisis. Troy graduated from Stanford University with a degree in economics, and after a number of successful ventures, he has devoted his life to carbon finance, renewable energy, and agriculture projects. So, Troy, welcome to the great indoors. Troy, how are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for the invite, Matt. And, um, and Troy, where are you enjoying the great indoors from today? Whereabouts are you in the world? This week, I'm up near Mount Shasta. Um, I'll actually be offline for the next week at the Mood Dance, which is uh, basically a lineage similar to the Sundance, but mostly for women. I'll be there supporting. Cool. And uh, that sounds great. We'll talk about that in a little bit more uh, in a little bit more detail shortly. But as I ask all my guests um, when they join, and obviously with COVID now somewhat uh, on the demise, what have you done lately that you haven't been able to do during the lockdown, or, or that's given you some some amount of joy? One thing that's been amazing is being able to meet in person all of the open or many of the open source community members at Earthshot Labs. It's we'll be talking more about that later in the show. But it's great after a year and a half of working together, meeting them in person all over California and the US. And uh, and so we have we have contributors all around the world. So that's been super fun. Awesome. And I just heard right, this is because obviously you're in the US, Troy, that on August the 9th, US citizens will be allowed into Canada. There you go. That'd so you can head north there you can head north and you larissa you can head north up to canada now august the 9th literally just hot off the press anyway so we're going to talk about 
the environment. We're going to talk about um, ecological regeneration. But tell us a little bit about yourself, Troy, a little bit about your background, your journey. Give our listeners uh, a, a short glimpse of yourself. Before I do that, I'm going to ping something you just said for a moment, which is heading north to Canada. If no one has noticed in the past couple of weeks, all over British Columbia, many parts of Canada and all over the Arctic, we've been experiencing record heat waves that have, it's not just broken the record by a little bit, but by a lot. And it's one of the early indicators that climate change is not something that's happening in the future. It's happening right now. It's leading to hundreds of people dying in developed countries. And we're just starting to see major thresholds being hit that will have runaway effects. So as polar ice caps melt, as there are disturbances in atmospheric conditions and trade winds that will cause these sort of anomalies more and more often. So I just want to start this with you know, it's it's sort of dire news. And, and I wish it wasn't, right? Like, I wish it'd be like, okay, we've got this covered. But the reality is humanity is facing something that is nearly overwhelming. And yes, we will be able to address this on a global systemic level. And it's going to take a level of cultural will and practical systemic change to actually go make the transition that we need to on many different levels. So just a little intro on myself. My name's my name's Troy. I'm a co-founder and CEO of Earthshot Labs. Earthshot Labs is an organization that was founded in order to address this challenge at a planetary scale and do so using nature. So rather than addressing the metric of there's too much CO2 in the atmosphere, so we need to take the CO2 out of the atmosphere so then the planet can cool down a little bit, that's not the real problem. The real problem is that we are facing unprecedented ecological collapse because of land use and other systemic ways in which civilization has grown. So we need to rebalance humanity's relationship with nature. So it's not that just we're using nature to solve climate change. We are fundamentally trying to redesign systems that are in alignment with right relationship with, with non-human nature. So that's what I've been working on the last couple of years. Before that, just to say, before that, I was a co-founder at Rhizome, which is pioneering bamboo-engineered lumber, another climate-positive building material, and large-scale reforestation in Southeast Asia. Yeah, thank you. I mean, Troy, that was a, a really great introduction. And I don't think there's, there's no easy way to say this. And I, I'm glad we've dived, dived straight into this, but we are in a real catastrophe right now, right? The news gets worse every day. Like you mentioned, what's recently happened out in Western Canada and, and the Northwest US with the unprecedented temperatures um, that they saw there. There really is, you know, th this is a, a, a cataclysmic issue that, that we are facing right now. And I think what's really interesting, and I've been, and, and I'm going to, the next question I'm going to ask you is when did you get into, you know, wh when did it become a profound issue for you as an individual? And then I'll tell you a little bit about something I read recently, which really opened my eyes. So maybe I can just talk a little bit about my relationship with this issue. And 
I think everyone, so I'm 32, everyone in my generation or younger seems to know and recognize, hey, this is, this is an issue. I think that there's a cultural inertia maybe where, yeah, there, there's a cultural, whatever, a cultural inertia where other generations perhaps have grown up in a different world. And with very different systems, with their very different access to technology. But talk to anyone who's 14 right now, and then they'll be like, yeah, of course, climate change is a massive issue. And I want to actually commit my life to addressing this. The wave of not just enthusiasm, but, but anger and powerlessness um, is really striking. So what we're trying to do now is offer a comprehensive framework for actually how we go about addressing climate change in a way that solves the real fundamental issues. So my own relationship, I would just say I'm a product of the times. I don't have any special capability or ethical orientation that other people don't. I just happen to be working on something that's directly related to it. And there's a couple of things you said there that is is why we invited you to to join um, this podcast, Troy. The first one was in the last season we had um, when we interviewed young Gen Z guests. The one issue they pointed to wholeheartedly was climate change, and one of the themes of this podcast is how has technology enabled us to get through the pandemic you know, have some level of normalcy, save lives. But then it was Rain Wilson, our, our guest in, in the previous season, who said, Matt, I believe this is a warm-up for the bigger challenges facing humanity, and that's climate change, right? So the other thing, and, and it goes back to my earlier point that I found really uh, uh, startling about the situation we're in right now is we're in this epoch of time called the Anthropocene, right? And the Anthropocene is this, as far as geologists are concerned, is this is where mankind has the biggest impact on the environment and on planet Earth. Nothing else on this planet has a bigger negative or positive impact on this planet than humanity. So in solving this issue, we can't just say, okay, let's do less of this and things will heal themselves. We're past that. That we are on a, a descent into the end of mankind unless we can harness technology to find a solution to the situation we're in. And I think that's where Earthshot Labs comes in, right, Troy? That's your mantra. That's your mission yeah. in, in Earthshot Labs. So talk a little bit about that. So why is technology important? What is it that we're doing and what is it that we can do now that we couldn't do 10 years ago? So too much carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is one of the metrics that we use to say, here's something we can address to help solve climate change. And there are a host of solutions that are often talked about. This is decarbonization of transportation, re like moving to renewable energy, the electrification of everything, decarbonizing the built environment. Those represent about a third of all solutions. And the larger aspect of how we actually go about addressing climate change is with nature. 
So more than two-thirds of potential climate change solutions in terms of total gigatons of CO2 drawdown include reforestation, include different land management practices, regenerative agriculture, intensive livestock grazing, a whole host of ways of using nature in order to reach ecological balance again. And I would say the whole framing of we're using nature to address climate change is also a slight misunderstanding because what we most fundamentally need to do is relate to nature as nature in a different way. So there's a great framework that I, I often think of, and I'm just thinking of right now by a friend, Charles Eisenstein, who talks about the four different levels of change. And we're pretty familiar with a few of them. One is you give a man a fish and he eats for a day, right? This is charity. And the next level is, well, you teach a man how to fish and he eats for a lifetime. Awesome. This is sort of the empowerment level. Then we start getting to a systemic level of like, okay, well, actually there aren't that many fish in the ocean right now. So maybe that's why the fisherman is having such a hard time. Or maybe there's an inefficient market that prices him out of being able to do, uh, do his profession in a good way. So addressing systemic inequality, addressing differences in you know, economic opportunities and the overall environmental crisis. And the fourth level is sort of like a meta level on top of that, which is what is it about the human belief system and our worldview that has caused ecological collapse in the first place? So this is sort of a level of narrative or a level of story. And in addressing the climate crisis, technology is probably useful for all of these in some way, and we need to address all of them. So how is Earthshot working on some of these levels? One is we are currently, we've built a really great research institution that is building open source tools for ecological restoration, including a digital twin of the earth that models soil, forests, and water restoration. So our belief is that if we can better understand how ecosystems actually work, then we can better incentivize people to actually go make the right decisions on their land when they invest in land or as a, on a policy decision. If you think about water restoration, for example, for the governor of California to be able to go say, okay, we have a water crisis, and here's the policy that we need to implement. He needs to see a compelling simulation of what the particular land use changes will mean for every single stakeholder. And so our open source research community that we form many academic institutional partnerships with is a coalition to bring policymakers, investors, and landowners the information that they need in order to make better ecological decisions. So one is mapping the earth. That unlocks a whole host of opportunities that we can share. And also mapping the earth, it wasn't possible five years ago. Only in the last couple of years have we had the level of detail of satellite imagery, with all these satellites going up into space the last few years, aerial and space-borne LIDAR, which is uh, essentially mapping the terrain very accurately and mapping forest cover all sorts of other useful nature analytics coming from space, from drones, from airplanes, as well as the computing power and machine learning algorithms needed to take a small amount of training data and extrapolate it across the entire Earth. 
And so, for example, one of the data sets we're using is uh, released by NASA. It's called the JEDI data set, a satellite or a, a monitor on the International Space Station. And it's hundreds of terabytes of data. It's a big lift to go process it. So it's only in the last couple of years do we actually have the technology to actually make, make a map of the Earth that's detailed enough to have useful insights about. So this land OS, you're basically creating a twin of planet Earth, right? With all these uh, mountains and, and, and of data that are now available. And that allows policymakers, people that want to intervene, whether it's with reforestation or any other initiatives, it enables them to simulate the direct effect that that would have on the environment, right? That's ultimately what, what we're talking about here. Correct. So that's the first step is measurement. The second step is actually incentivizing people to do something. And we actually have the incentive structures already built in. There are carbon markets and markets for ecosystem services. This means things like the California cap and trade system or the European trading scheme, ways of incentivizing uh, pollution emitters or carbon emitters and uh, people doing sustainable activities, connecting them together and incentivizing proper land use. They've been really small until now. And it's just in the last year that we've seen a massive demand on a policy level and on a corporate level to actually go uh, say, hey, I want to be, I want to run a net zero company. And so in the last year, we've seen this massive cultural will towards finding solutions. The problem is actually there are not enough projects doing carbon sequestration. So LandOS, the first product that we're releasing, is an easy way for every landowner on Earth to access markets for carbon. And that is only possible through remote verification and crowdsourced verification where a landowner provides the data rather than a professional verifier coming through and half a million and half a million dollars and two years later they come out with a professional carbon project. So we're essentially democratizing access to ecosystem markets and carbon markets. So that's another step is spreading the wealth curve to small and rural and indigenous landowners all around the world rather than large project developers, which we also believe can increase the amount of carbon credit supply more than a thousand times across the, the globe. So that's the second step is incentivizing people. And we incentivize people by paying them. The third step is, let's say, say broadly, it is creating a credit that is high quality. That means putting a transparent credit on a blockchain so that it can be easily transacted. So it's peer reviewed at every step of the process. And the fourth step is just going about doing it. So actually going and doing project development because climate change is not a problem in software. It's a physical problem where we have cut down too many trees and we're not letting them grow back and we have collapsed ecosystems. So that means on the ground, a physical reforestation with hundreds of thousands or millions of people around the globe actually going and doing the activities. And there are a few major categories of activities that we can do. One is reforestation. However, this is also complex. Reforestation isn't usually the problem. The problem is that we just cut the trees down again or run cattle on the land, or there's other reasons why there's economic motivations for, for degrading ecosystems. So incentivizing regenerative agriculture is a big one, no-till, cover cropping, you know, different inputs, different ways of structuring agroforestry, reforestation. 
low-tech water restoration. So using swales, small earthen check dams, um, things we call beaver dam analogs. So ways of slowing down the water cycle and turning arid regions into little oases. So this, these are examples of scalable solutions that when they're introduced across billions of acres around the globe, will have a major impact. So it's it's pretty amazing, Troy. It's pretty amazing. And you've you've said you mentioned a number of technologies that weren't even you know in existence uh, you know five to ten years ago, but are very much buzzwords today, and particularly in the industry we're in, whether it's AI, whether it's blockchain, whether it's bringing together this marketplace. So not only are you doing the analysis, you're providing this marketplace to incentivize people to do these things, right, and to get involved. So I think it's a, a, an incredible initiative. And one of the things that that I, I thought was, you know, in I've been reading this book at the moment by Elizabeth Colbert. Uh, I don't know if you're aware of it. It's called Under a White Sky. And Elizabeth is a writer for The New Yorker. And it's basically about this, this very issue that in, you know, during the, the Anthropocene era, whenever mankind has tried to intervene to prevent you know, some ecological catastrophe, they've effectively invited another ecological catastrophe that they couldn't foresee before they tried this inv- inv- uh, this initiative. So could this Land OS platform that you're working on detect you know, some of the byproducts of, of some of the initiatives you've mentioned? And I'll, I'll give you an example because it, it's quite interesting as well that this one is 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 right at the beginning of the book uh, and i found it really interesting it goes back historically to chicago and the chicago river so the chicago chicago as we know it today you know relied on the chicago river and was its main uh, conduit to get rid of all its waste and that flew west into lake michigan but it was getting so polluted that they decided to build a canal that linked the michigan uh, the chicago river with the Mississippi River Basin. And that alleviated all the pollution coming down the Chicago River and, and into Lake Michigan. But what that what happened then it was there was a complete, complete ecological imbalance. So the Chicago River and the Mississippi Basin started clogging up with new forms of algae. So what mankind did then was they introduced Asian carp to eat the algae. But then what happened was the Asian carp started to find its way into lake michigan and if it got into the great lakes you know ecological system there would be complete catastrophe for all the other fish because they were so invasive so that's just a a vivid example of how we can trigger off these other byproducts you will of 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 what was initially a positive intervention now i guess with all the data that you're going to be putting into and, and, and are putting into land os can it detect i mean does it have i mean i'm sure it will over time with ai that the algorithms to detect, you know, when an intervention could have potentially harmful circumstances. This is something we think about a lot. And I wish there was an easy answer that I could just be like, yes, there will be no negative externalities or unintended consequences of what we're doing. And that's actually not true. I think in the quest for sequestering a lot of carbon in trees, in machine with machines, direct air capture, we're going to 
cause a lot of unintended consequences as a civilization. So the question is, how over the next couple decades will we address that when we realize it? And I think this is, this is the, in a way, the core of what Earthshot is doing. Because what we see our core product is, is the process of how we're doing it. It's not just the technology as we think about it today that we will then go implement. We have a business plan around, go make a bunch of money and uh, you know achieve our value capture and then say we're doing something good for the world. It's actually in a thousand tiny decisions to actually continually create products in service of life. And I wish I could say that there was like, that also that every company was doing this, that their fundamental ethical motivation was because of a love for nature and a desire to see to see original diverse ecosystems and old growth forests spread and actually that's just it's just not true right now and so this this is dresses the fourth level of the theory of change which is narrative how we go about building an organization like earthshot is just as important or more important as the specific systemic solutions that we're proposing. So we're proposing a comprehensive operating system for land management. And our narrative is that that we are in communion with nature. We are nature living on the planet. And we are in service of the whole. And we'll need to keep making sure that that's true for each product decision. Because the decisions that we make on a technological side have dramatic implications for whether palm oil plantations become a monoculture or whether high carbon sequestering bamboo becomes a global monoculture because that's what we're optimizing for. So what we choose to measure and what we choose to optimize for and um, and just the whole fact of measuring and monetizing nature is tricky. In a way, I wish it wasn't required. The problem is that we're already measuring and monetizing nature and we're doing a really bad job of it so rather than sort of in a way doing this the sort of the spiritual jump of saying okay we are all in this together and now we will no longer do what we have been doing it's not a realistic way of looking at the problem so what we need to do is sort of like take the existing level of consciousness of how we view nature and how we manage our relationship and codify a, and optimize for the variables that we think are truly important. So biodiversity is a really interesting variable, for example. Because it's not useful for humans to say, oh, there's lots of pretty plants and birds and fungus, but it is an acknowledgement that nature is valuable for its own sake. And so for us, that's a highly important metric to continue to be able to understand and measure. Things like soil carbon and forestry carbon are a little bit more obvious to say, okay, if we sequester more carbon in forests, the climate will be more balanced and humans will benefit. So the way we're doing it is the integration of practical solutions for climate change and an organizational structure and ethos that reflects where we want to see business going as well. We'll get to the spirituality bit in a little while. And, and one thing I wanted to, to put you there when we talked about some of the the businesses that are, are, are looking at, at getting involved now. In our last episode, we had Daniel Hernandez from Telefonica Group in Spain. 
And he took us through, you know, some of the initiatives that they're doing as far as offsetting carbon footprint with their customers, giving them credits that then they can apply to an initiative of their choice. It could be reforestation in you know, just on the outskirts of Madrid. But with, 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 this topic comes up all the time with a lot of our customers that we speak to on this podcast and, and just in other forums. What advice, and, and obviously they're, they're cognizant of the communities they serve and, and they're cognizant uh, of a number of factors, but what advice would you give to them if they were starting to think about this as a, a corporate initiative they really had to embrace? What would be the first thing you'd say to them, Troy? So there have been some pretty pioneering efforts by companies that I really admire. And this includes Stripe and Shopify and Microsoft. And essentially where they've developed entire teams to go do a level of diligence on carbon projects and come up with a coherent strategy to do carbon offsets. And I really admire that level of dedication and work and setting up an entire vehicle for for this and it's complex right and there are very few organizations with deep expertise in actual on the ground operations because reforestation maybe that's not what the local people need and maybe it doesn't actually address the systemic challenges in that area that were the cause of environmental degradation in the first place so the level of sensitivity and consideration is really high and so like this there's no easy answer for how to do a carbon project well Right now, we are building a reforestation and ecological restoration playbook that will be open source, um, synthesized from many decades of, of on-the-ground operations from different organizations, including one that we've partnered with very deeply, and to try to build a strategy So, for our own reforestation for the things that we take into consideration, as well as other people's. So one is, you know, the tech enabled by technology so that we can monitor and see what's actually happening on the ground and see the implications on a landscape level. And then just the real relational operational expertise, because this is going to be something that people do. And it will be from relationships. Because like, how do we do reforestation? You know, we will be building trusted relationships with key people in each area and those trusted people create a culture for their team which is maybe tens of thousands of people and so it's also about the way we do it with consideration with consideration for ecology with consideration for people with the financial incentives of the organization you know it's it's many many tiny little decisions so the answer is we don't know how we get to billions of acres of reforestation right now, but we have the intention and we have the will and the competence and expertise to go do it. And it will be an organic unfolding process. So a recommendation to a corporate client, there are easy ways to do carbon offsets. And in the end, they might not be good. And that's okay. We got to start somewhere. I'm happy to take a call. In six months, we will be offering what we think are very high quality carbon credits. And from our own project development and from the network of landowners all around the world who will be going through our methodologies. There's another, maybe just one other aspect for people who are really in, into like carbon offset geeks listening to this show, whether they're sustainability, 
officers in the corporate environment. One of the ways in which I see the carbon credit market evolving is sort of the way the mortgage mortgage market works. There's prime mortgages and there's subprime mortgages. And prime mortgages, there's a professional verifier, a professional uh, project developer. That's how the market works right now. We're creating prime credits. And the opportunity is what I see in subprime credits, which means remotely verified. Maybe there's more bias. Maybe there's more uncertainty. These are rural or indigenous peoples all around the world that are creating credits with maybe we don't know the quality of the effect, but at least it's going in the right direction and that the scale we can reach is a thousand times greater. So when we bundle in many, many thousands of landowners um, with non-correlated uncertainties in measurement, in verification, in leakage and other risk factors for ecological impacts like fires or political changes, we can create instruments that achieve the overall outcome of ecological regeneration in a region without knowing or having to prove that an individual landowner sort of like follows through or that the small intervention actually happened necessarily. So, but, so that, that's sort of like the, the magic of large numbers. So let's let's switch gears right now and talk about the pandemic and and how that's potentially influenced your thinking and what you're doing and I tell you what for for our organization and for our customers you know literally overnight on uh, in March 2020 we stopped flying in fact I haven't been on a plane since then and I haven't been to the office since then so my car has pretty much been parked on and the how's driveway it going for you? It's great. I'm loving every minute of it. Um, well, I mean, it's it's different, and it's been a long time now. Um, and obviously, we're seeing some gradual return, you know, to the what happened pre pre pandemic. Although I don't think it will ever be the same. But I thought what was really interesting was come like October of last year, you know, everybody was patting themselves on the back a little bit, saying, "Well, look, the the environment is repairing itself." Carbon emissions are down. There's jellyfish in the canals of Venice. You know, my mother lives in a little village in North Wales that was like a deluge of goats into the village. The environment appeared to be healing itself just because we stopped traveling and, and, and the changes we had to make. But I don't think that'll last forever. And, and a lot of people, like I said, thought, well, this is the panacea. This is the the silver bullet that's going to fix our problems. And, and I don't think it is. But how did it influence your thinking, Troy, and, and what we need to do, um, you know, or, or how that can help? Or, or, or was it just completely a temporary thing? Yeah, many layers to this one. So for Earthshot, we started during the pandemic. And so we have a natively distributed team all around the world, a very diverse group of people from from extremely different backgrounds. And that's really cool, the fact that we can have a distributed team and we get together every once in a while in person where we've started to, which is amazing and required to build trust. But having an innately distributed team, I think, is something that is normal now. And uh, I love it. So that's one aspect of just organizational, how modern organizations work and how decisions get made, how communication happens. 
another level is the the pandemic i think gave people back more time and and it takes so so there's a lot of i mean this is this is a maybe a little bit at the fourth level of narrative where a lot of people are afraid to stop to stop being busy to take real weekends maybe even to take weeks of real vacation right like silicon valley mindset is not to go take four weeks of vacation and and so i think the pacing of work i even notice in my system has gotten to be very very fast like the problem is big so we need to run the fastest we need to beat our competitors and and i've seen a lot of friends burn out from that pacing where it's actually not a consistently nourishing experience to be working on something, even if it has great impact. So my hypothesis and the hypothesis in our organization is that people need to be consistently nourished the entire time that they're working. And that means having a very reasonable workload. Um, That means focusing our genius in maybe it's only four days of work a week, or maybe it's uh, working when you want or taking very flexible hours or and and having a consistently nourishing experience. And another aspect is fun. You know, climate change is very serious. You know, it's a big problem. And if we are down about it, it's not fun to work on. You know, it's just it's not fun to work on. So. So. We have it, it's it's not a sprint, right? It's just not a sprint, and to sprint will perpetuate the problem. So what the pandemic has done is, for many people, having gotten the opportunity to pause for a moment and and allow the complex emotional relational lives that they are experiencing to unfold more completely. So for some people, it will lead to a breakup. For some people, it led to the deepest relationship of their, of their lives. And I think that's also happening on a cultural level where we have an opportunity to examine the systems that we've been a part of. It's like, do I want to commute? Do I want to work at that job that I actually don't care about, that I'm doing, that I truly am just doing for the money? And for a lot of people, the answer is, I don't want to keep doing what I'm doing. And as a culture, we don't want to keep doing what we're doing. And so we see an overwhelming number of people joining the open source Earthshot community just saying, hey, you know, I'm a Google employee or I'm a X employee. And what I really want to be doing is something that's meaningful with people that I love, that I have real relationships for, with, that has a purpose that I deeply believe in and that I can be in my zone of genius and creativity. And this will require new organizational structures in order to be able to actually meet those needs. And where people are not anonymized in a large corporation, where people are empowered with a lot of agency to make decisions on behalf of an organization, where they have real relationships with their coworkers, and where we come together explicitly because of love for our common purpose and for each other, the fact that it's just great to work together. So. I see a lot of benefit in coming out of this time of pausing and reflection. I I think that's a really good point, Troy. And I think for me personally, 
there's been a moment of reflection. There's been a moment of realization, particularly like you said at the beginning, if you ask any 14-year-old, they'll be like that with climate change, right? And what's going on? But I think for, for other people, when we live such busy lives, there was never the opportunity to really get your head around what was happening, really comprehend the situation and, and what can what can be done. And I think over the last 18 months, I mean, I'm talking personally here, uh, I, I've certainly taken it um, a lot more seriously than, than I ever thought it would. And, 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 and it's, it's quite incredible. So maybe that's a positive of the pandemic, not just the fact that we saw a sort of temporary, if you will, in the data of, of carbon emission, but maybe a lot of people, you know, woke up to the, to the situation that's unfolding around us. Let's move into spirituality now. This is where it gets interesting. And we, we spoke about this earlier. And I think this is something we've never spoken about on this podcast before. But again, I think it's really, really um, important. And you talk about spirituality. You talked before about enjoying what you do, being positive about what you do. Because look, climate change is, you could get really down about it, right? And then it's not going to be a lot of fun. But explain how spirituality has been a bridge um, and can be, you know, be the bridge into into solving this this issue that we see ahead of us. So, in the introduction, I said, "Hey, I'm going to spend this week off and be a supporter at the Moon Dance," and it's you know four nights, five days to be in ceremonial consciousness, to be with other people in silence, in prayer in fasting. And to me, a time like that is an essential bridge with the rigorous technical work that we're doing. And without that level of ceremonial communion with other people, with nature, with the recognition that that we literally are on a sacred journey, that I would not be able to sustain my motivation for doing what I'm doing. So it can provide a orientation. It provides the power of conviction that what I'm doing is worthwhile doing. And it also provides the humility to be able to change and say, we don't know how it's going to unfold. We don't know the decisions that we're going to have to make over the coming years to actually be in service of life. But it's a commitment to stay current with what is required by life in each moment. And if this sounds vague, I'll give some more specifics. So sort of like what what is spirituality anyway? Maybe just on a base case, like where do you feel good in life? And a lot of people feel really good when they go on a hike through the forest or when they're connecting with their friends, um, where they're in love with somebody. Right. And it doesn't have to be just a rigorous process of self improvement or meditation or revelation of ecstatic states or sort of awakening into dreamlike reality. Like these are maybe all aspects of it, but just being in deep sharing with each other is really important. And so when we're in moments of 
of sharing with each other, whether that's with coworkers, whether that's in nature, like these are orientation points that allow us to keep going. That's really interesting. It's really interesting. Now, my next question is something that we, we, we cover a lot and we're going to cover more in this, in this series, and that's social media. Is social media helping you, Troy, or is it hindering your cause right now? I don't know. We're still pretty new. And what I can imagine is that social media will be highly important for what we're doing. Because intrinsically addressing climate change is a communal activity, right? It is not going to be a small handful of companies working on a small number of solutions where the value capture is uh, kept by a few uh, very successful billionaires. That's not how we're going to actually address this. This is going to be a groundswell or social movement that informs the systems that we are creating, but it's going to be individual participation on a mass scale. And we started to see that uh, effect over the last decade, and we're going to see that grow. And so Earthshot is one way of engaging in this movement. And there are many other ways of engaging with the movement. But honestly, right now, the promise of social media is getting people's energy up of like, we have to do something. And it's not yet fulfilled in what do I do about it now? And so that's the bridge that we're attempting to building is taking the energy, the anger, the uh, despair, the frustration, the hope, and taking that energy and actually being able to give practical solutions. So that's also why we're releasing an app called Biome, where everyone on Earth can be a citizen scientist and provide training data. It's just one small example of something that everyone can engage with climate change in a very meaningful way that is actually really important for us. So I really want Earthshot to be a place where we can come together and do concrete, meaningful things together, um, rather than just building emotion around the, around the theme. That's brilliant. Let's talk about that app again, Troy, because that's something, cons- you know, just you know, we talked before about what corporates need to do, where corporates should begin. How, co- but what about consumers? What about individuals? Let's talk about that app, how that can help, and, and what you're developing with Earthshot. So, the easy way: go to Earthshot.eco. We don't have a download yet, but you can join our email list, and then in a few weeks you'll get an opportunity. So, Biome, Biome's pretty cool, and what you will be able to do when you do it is essentially take pictures of trees. And this might seem like, oh, what sort of information could you get from trees? But actually for us, 10 million people taking pictures of trees would be a huge benefit at helping our global machine learning models that were viewing the earth from space actually start viewing the earth from the ground. Um, And so then we can much more accurately represent ecosystems. That's one way. People will also be able to get paid. Probably people in rural or developing regions will be able to make entire livelihoods from this app. So sort of think of like Uber or Pokemon Go for ecological information. That's just one very small way of engaging with the climate crisis in a meaningful way. I would say the big one for most people is time. What are you working on with your career that addresses this or not? If you work at a corporation, 
is this something that you can bring into that organization? And if you're considering some starting something new or joining something, what is the sort of company that you actually want to be a part of? Because what we work on really matters. And that is by far the largest contribution, more than investing your money, more than uh, taking a little bit of time out of the day, or more than buying sustainable products. It's really about the time that we spend working on and our creative energy. So that's always the big one. And you can always come to the Earthshot Slack channel. There's many, many organizations hiring, as well as go to other, other sites like uh, climate base where there's a massive number of companies hiring for for ecological specific roles. Cool. And and if people want to know more um, about Earthshot, we talked about your website. Where else could they go, Troy? I know you do a great newsletter uh, that I read today. Easiest way, just go to the website, go to earthshot.eco. There's pages on how to invest in the company. We have an open, open equity structure, which means that um, right now anyone who's an accredited investor can invest. And then over the coming months, we'll be releasing that to all people. So if you want the opportunity to put your money where your values are, you can sign up on the waiting list to invest at earthshot.eco slash invest. And also check out the research, subscribe to the newsletter. And then if you're actually excited to put time into these projects, whether you're a scientist, a software engineer, other sort of domain expert, uh, designer, you can join the Slack channel, and that's a place where you can get hooked up with research teams in many different areas, including the soil, forest, and water research teams that are doing like really cutting-edge machine learning models for ecosystem modeling, as well as sort of more just like general affiliate groups that, hey, I don't know where I belong in my climate journey, and I just want to, I'm just here to learn. Um, there's a place for you there, too. So we have a lot of mentors as well that will pick you up and uh, sort of show you where to go in your journey. Excellent. Okay, well, listen, Troy, I've really enjoyed our conversation. I think the work you're doing is noble. It's groundbreaking. It's inspiring. What I would love to invite people into is taking time right now and connecting with their motivation for why they're working on what they're working on. You don't have to go into four days of silence and fasting. But what I would really love is just take five minutes right now and say, is my career aligned with what I care about? You know, is my motivation for doing something based on a love of nature? Or what is my deep motivation? What do I really care about? Maybe it's family. Maybe it's community you want to create. Maybe it is ecological restoration. Maybe it's the transformation of global economic systems. But what is what do I really, really care about? And am I living in integrity with that? And just a little honest self-assessment. And maybe write down that deep motivation you found. For me, like one of my deep motivations is the sense of reverence and awe of being in an old growth redwood forest of like, this is amazing. And being able to share that experience with other people with a level of sensitivity to really appreciate nature together is just incredible. I love that experience. And I want to optimize for that experience for everyone on earth who wants to have it. Um, and that's a driving motivation for me. So I would love to hear what your motivations are. If you're listening to this, you can go to the website, post it in the Slack channel in, in the introductions page. and. Um, 
And it's such a joy to be on this journey over decades with people who care about the same things that I do. And it's a joy to work on things practically with people that you don't need to convince anything of, but who intrinsically share a motivation and passion. So you can have a deep level of trust. And when you have that deep level of trust, it is more fun than I could have possibly imagined. So my prayer is that we find in our lives what is really, really deeply fun and align ourselves with that and find the other people who want to work on it with us. That's brilliant, Troy. That's brilliant. There's a call to action for our listeners, a call to action for our listeners. Hopefully that'll yield some interesting uh, insights for you. Well, it was great to speak to Troy today. He is harnessing the entrepreneurial zest and innovation of Silicon Valley startup culture, not for personal profit or prestige, but to save the planet. This cause is what he is deeply connected to at a spiritual level. And he has asked and answered his own question of, is your career aligned with what you really care and are motivated about? He has found joy in his passion for the environment and aligned it with his work. His enthusiasm for ecological restoration is truly infectious and one that we all hope prevails. So please subscribe to our podcast on all the usual podcast channels. Leave a review or rating if you feel so inclined. It certainly helps us. And check out two other Amdocs podcasts that are brilliant and available right now. One is The Future of Tech with Abishai Charlene. And the other is Points of View with our Chief Marketing Officer, Gil Rosen. Also, and I implore you, visit our new and improved website, amdocs.com forward slash the great indoors. It's had a total makeover and looks rather dazzling. Need I say more? So we'll be back in two weeks for another edition of the great indoors. I'm Matt Roberts for Amdocs in Toronto and have a great day wherever you are.